Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm here today with Chris Wilkins, who is the managing partner of Wilkins Southworth. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Jeanette. Nice to be here. Yeah, I know. In my good. office. In your <laughs> office. I said this looks like such an intellectual environment with all these books behind us, so I feel very intimidated, but no. Yeah, no worry. No worry. <laughs> no, so um, it's great to have you on, Chris, because obviously you are uh, an absolute material part of our business in terms of what what you're helping us with with our tax and everything and having the podcast brave bold brilliant i just thought what the perfect opportunity to share your knowledge and experience with the people that are listening or watching on youtube as well yeah, so, pleasure, pleasure. um so chris should we start with your journey a little bit about you your background so we can get to know the real chris wilkins yeah sure i mean i um i'm probably going to admit to something I, I don't normally tell people but i've always wanted to be an accountant and it sort <laughs> of started out when my mum had a nursery school and um, I used to go with her probably when I was about 13 or 14. And it was a sort of an old, um, it was a, what I would class as a typical accountant, five foot seven, three piece suit, pencil moustache, rolled umbrella, bowler hat. But the guy was unbelievable. He could add up four rows um, of numbers uh, and he was basically doing my mum's accounts in his head. And if you can imagine a sort of three-quarter plinth around an old Georgian house with the, the company seals, you know, the ones that around there, and there were a grandfather clock in the corner. And I used to sit in a big armchair with my legs dangling from the end of a, um, a rich tea bic biscuit and a glass of orange. <laughs> and I thought, well, this isn't too bad. I mean, uh, he seems to be uh, doing my mum's accounts and he earns money out of it. So I thought, well, perhaps so I should try there. So then what happened is that... Um, I went through the comprehensive education. Um, then I went to uh, City of London Poly to do a foundation course in accountancy. And um, when I was there, I was, you didn't used to get grants in those days, so you didn't get any money. So I worked as a petrol pump attendant at the weekends. And then I'm going to show my age here. We did um, a pools round. Oh, we yes. did Zetas and Littlewoods and those type pools. Uh, I speak to my son, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. He just sort of goes, does the lottery or something nowadays. But that's how everyone earned their money. Yeah. And uh, maybe there's a film called Spend, Spend, Spend about uh, someone that earned, I think they got a million pounds um, when they won the pools. But So I used to do that. And so the City of London Poly was where I started. And then my first job was that firm of accountants where my mum had her accounts done. Wow. So um, I started then. And in those days, you used to do a training contract. So that meant that I used to go to a firm called Emil Wolf to train. And that was on Friday nights after work, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and go back to work Monday. And uh, that was sort of how it all started. And um, then I've never really regretted that. And the thing I like about accountancy 
is it's so practical in that everyone has some tax question and you need to sort of know if it even if you're sort of having a chat with someone they can't work out their payslip or they need to know when does VAT start there's just so much to go know and I left school without even knowing how to fill in a pay and in book let alone knowing what VAT was mm. and I just think it's so important that everyone knows that so um, my uh, two stepsons and son they've all worked here and even if they don't do accountancy they need to know just basic stuff like I say how to work out your payslip or how to know um, when you pay VAT and when you don't so mm. that's sort of like um, how it all started and um, then I've just been working ever since and sort of progressed so um, I then once I'd qualified once I worked in South End I went to a firm called Robson Rhodes where I qualified and Robson Rhodes then were about the uh, sixth largest firm of accountants they got subsequently taken over by Grant Thornton and then I went to be an audit manager of Panelcur Forster, which are about the fourth largest. And the great thing about Panelcur Forster is that we ended up doing international work. So I, I did, took a due diligence team to Guyana, um, and the client there was Lord Beaverbrook of the Daily Mail. Wow. And we went over there with him and we bought 250 square miles of Guyana, including the Demerara Sugar Company and the, and the part of the Demerara River. Wow. And then that was floated. And then I acted for a group of 16 property companies in the northwest of England. And that company was with a reverse takeover, a company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So we then, I then went out into Canada and we had to um, reverse that company into a quoted stock exchange company and then float it over there. Wow. So um, that was quite interesting. And then I left them in May 1993 to set up Wilkin Southworth and in this building here um, where it all started wow, and uh, that's sort of the basis of it but the beauty about it is that gave me a great foundation to move forward because when you've done due diligence in foreign countries you've done with double taxation treaties then coming across that type of legislation different tax treaties didn't really sort of phase me. So then we, um, one of the first jobs we had at Wilkin Southworth, we acted for the largest telecommunications business in St. Petersburg, Russia, which was owned by a UK company, which was then owned by a company on the North American Stock Exchange, NASDAQ company. So we then had to liaise with the um, Russians and that made the days very long because their timing was three hours ahead. The West Coast in America was eight hours um, behind so your days just got longer and longer but you meant that you could do a job in one one day picking up from the Russians they could start at the nine in the morning which is our six in the morning we pick it up there and then we've got eight hours to finish it before it has to go to the west coast yeah of course so um, we did that one and then we we've done all manner of things like we ended up acting for um, the largest landowner in Bucharest Romania and my wife says that if I was female, I'd be permanently pregnant because I'd never say no because we're getting all these jobs. And you think, blimey, how are you going to do that? <laughs> oh, my God. I love this because, one, is I'm, I'm smiling because I've done a lot of emerging market stuff, as you know, in my corporate life. And I was thinking, all oh, the time zones and how you manage that. But I think what, what as you were talking about, I thought, gosh, one how you knew from such a young age that you wanted to do accountancy and, you know, almost like the, the shameful admission that you always wanted to be an accountant. And I can totally see your passion for it, you know, and uh, that, that just comes through. But also the size and scale of the businesses that you have supported with all things tax and accountancy related. So regardless of whether your clients today are 
big organizations or solopreneurs starting out, all of that knowledge and experience you bring to the party, don't you? Yeah, I mean, what you find nowadays is that um, my, I, I say sort of my lunch hour in inverted commas, but I, I always say to um, clients is that if you go to a doctor, you don't want to know the best headache tablet for your headache that was five years ago. You want to know the best headache tablet today. Yeah. By the same token, I sit there reading taxation magazines and all the literature because you've got to give the best advice to the client. And if you can't give the best advice, then there is a lot of mediocrity out there. Mm. And there's a lot of accountants that just are, I, I think they're just lazy because they don't want to either, they're not able to think about it or don't want to think about it. And then how do they put it in practice? So it does make it more complicated for them. But what I like to do is make sure we give the best result to the client. And if you're not thinking about their problem and don't understand their problem, you can't give the best advice. Mm. But the problem you find is with the situation nowadays is, as we were talking about earlier, the best advice in some circumstances means you've got to consider VAT, corporation tax, capital gains tax, income tax, possibly um, IR35 legislation. It, and then you think, well, how are we going to present this in a set of financial statements? Are we going to use financial reporting standard one, 102? Uh, can we use a subsection 1A? How do we present it to make sure that the, the client gets the best result? Mm. So unless you understand all those myriadical points, you can't put it all together. And it's a bit sort of, I don't know, a bit like a sort of a, a good chef. You might be able to do one part of the meal, but if you can't do the whole lot and present it properly, then it's all for naught, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also there's a lot of, um, it's perceived as a bit of a black art as well. And I think probably, I mean, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I would imagine some of your clients may feel quite over overwhelmed and a bit daunted. You know, where do you start? And it's, I think it's the, the great skill that, that I found from, from working with you, with, with Chris and I, is that you take the complexity out. You're able to translate complex tax is issues into layman's terms that your average person can understand and, and yeah. get. And that's quite an art, I so think. So if I talk to a client and I say, look, you've borrowed... So the classic thing is under the um, COVID loans, um, a limited company may have had a loan and then the client takes the money out to spend on some personal matter. So I said, well, that means you've got an overdrawn director's loan account and we've got to find a method of repaying that back. And if you don't repay it within nine months, and these are the ramifications. Mm. When I speak to the revenue, I'll say, well, it's section 455, blah, blah, blah. And it's a bit like an interpreter. What you've got to do is make sure you do the right language to whoever you're talking to. Otherwise, you will lose them. But the most important thing, if the client doesn't understand the situation, they're not going to be able to get the answer to help you. So you've got to make sure they understand the problem and then we can get to the solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that, that interpretation, as you were saying earlier, there's, it's not just one aspect because there are implications that then knock on further down the line, aren't they? It's, you can't look yeah, at it in so, isolation. Uh, give you an idea. I don't act for Uber, but I just read the Uber case just out of interest. Now, the thing about the Uber case is you think, well, wait a minute, what's that going to do with anything that Chris Wilkins will get involved with? Because he doesn't act for a, a company quoted on the London Stock Exchange. But the mm. Uber case, what it said is that it's um, a principal and agent. So if I get a, a ride in a taxi um, from an Uber taxi, the argument that Uber had is that that taxi driver is self-employed. 
and he is he is the principal and we uber are the agent yeah so if he's the principal that means that that if the taxi driver's turnover is less than eighty five thousand pounds he doesn't charge me that and uber then takes a fee off the taxi driver as agent yeah however the supreme court's ruling the way i understand it is it's turned that on its head the ruling revolved whether you're self-employed employed or the bit in the middle which is a worker a worker is a self-employed person who has employment rights so then the question was well then that would probably imply that the taxi driver is not the agent he's the principal sorry he's the other way around he is the agent not the principal the principal is uber yeah and the reason uber are the principal is they are the ones that dictate what things happen i.e they say when you get in the car i'm not going to tell you where chris wilkins is going but when he goes i want you to do this journey i'm only allowing you to drive this type of car is chris wilkins doesn't like the journey i'm going to deduct uber i'm going to deduct some money off you mm. so the ruling basically said you have too much control over the over the driver so therefore if uber's the principal suddenly they've breached the vat regulations on 85000 because it's not the driver who's deemed to be charging me it's uber that's deemed to be charging me yeah. so then i think there's a vat issue and then that gives rise to ir35 issues which is where i came in and how it'd be relevant to some of my client situations yeah, yeah but that's by reading a case that has got no relevance to this yeah so i was also reading an sdlt case that would give me an argument to fight a capital gains principal private residence issue because the the argument that the HMRC used on the STLT case is then contrary to what they were arguing on my client's capital gains tax case. So I can cite that one. Yes, But yeah. if you don't sit there and do the work and read the cases, you're not going to be able to come up with it. No, absolutely. No, and that's great. And when, we, when we're talking about sort of advice to, for people starting businesses, because um, I know you, you represent a whole range of different sectors, don't you? I know you do a lot. You do lots in the property world, but you have a lot of clients that have other types of businesses as yeah, well, yeah. don't you, Chris? Yeah, we've got small sole traders and we sort of the whole spectrum, really. And so um, there's um, some families we act for three generations for and sort of whatever the, the, the sons or the daughters do, they ask me to do the accounts and it could be anything from, I don't know, running a hairdressing business to being a plumber, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, so some, because a lot of the people listening here will either be entrepreneurs themselves and already have businesses may or maybe in the corporate world, you know, and having a successful career in corporate or maybe thinking about making a transition out, which is what I did, right, in terms of corporate to, to entrepreneur. So when you when someone comes to you and they're, they're at early stages of starting a business, I think it'd be quite helpful for people listening or watching to, to just sort of hear around what are some of the kind of the watch outs, the key things that you would say, consider this now so that you almost partly start with the end in mind and work backwards almost to make sure you set things up in the right way from the beginning. Yeah. So I don't know if you've got some I advice think, around that. Yeah, I think um, we've got a, an article on our website site about guest houses. And um, a friend of ours came for a drink through COVID and I said, how's things? And this was where um, the husband and wife, the husband worked and wanted to retire and they wanted to buy a guest house. Went to a local accountant and it was sort of, to me, it's like he didn't think about it. He just said, right, we're going to put it in a limited company. Mm. So I said to the friend, well, why did you do that? He said, oh, it's fantastic. Um, we just set up a limited company. We're going to buy the property. We'll probably do it next week and we'll put it straight in. And I said, but wait a minute, you've got to think about the exit to start with. If you buy a property in a limited company, then 
the company will pay corporation tax, which in two years' time will be at 25%, um, on the sale of that property. And then you will end up getting the money out of the company and you'll pay income tax in the form of salary or dividend. Well, if you're a high rate taxpayer, your dividend will be at 38.1%, but you've already paid 25% corporation tax. Yeah. So to me, that was, again, an example of a, a, a mediocre accountant that just took the easiest route and hadn't thought about it. And I reckon that this client, it would have cost them over a quarter of a million pounds going down that route. Wow. Plus the additional advantages that they can claim they hadn't thought of, such as um, if they buy the property in their, in their own name, they've sold their principal private residence, so they live in part of the property. So part of it would be free from capital gains tax, which wouldn't happen if they had it in a limited company. Mm. So you couldn't claim that relief. There's also a capital gains tax letting relief that you can claim that they hadn't taken advantage of. Advantage of. And then we can claim um, capital allowances on integral features in the building. And then because it's likely to make a loss in the first year, and because there are going to be a partnership, I would allocate the loss to the husband who would then carry it back to offset against his PAY income. Yeah. So it's just that no one had given them the service to think about the size of the problem. And what you've got to do with all clients is at least give them um, the advantage of thinking about it properly and not just giving a, a quick slapdash answer. And that's mm. with a lot of things is that accountants say, well, a limited company is the answer or an LLP or whatever. You've got to th really dig deep into the problem and then you can give them some proactive tax advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, And I certainly, I mean, I can only speak from personal experience because we're, we're just about to introduce a new aspect to our property business. And we've had exactly this conversation today and yesterday around how best to structure it, what's our objectives. And, and you've done a very thorough job at advising us, Chris, so we're very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I guess one, understanding where, does it, where do they want to ultimately be? And then two, you know, I guess you then then scope out the options, but looking at all of the aspects, not just one one small one small part of it. Yeah. So you think about your particular problem. We had VAT issues. We consider buy to let properties, furnished holiday lets. We finished. We can consider the rules on those. Then we then considered the entity that we run it through, a limited liability partnership, eighteen ninety partnership, which means that that it, those accounts don't get filed at company's house. Mm. Uh, it's cheaper or a limited company. And then you, you think about the whole lot, discount the ones that aren't appropriate to hopefully give you the right conclusion. But if you don't, if you don't consider it because your thinking is too narrow or you're not aware of the problems, that's when issues arise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one aspect which is quite new for us in terms of understanding with our property businesses is, is the whole um, capital allowances. So could you do just a sort of a, a quick summary of what are they? How the hell are they calculated? What's what's the benefit of being able to claim them? Just so that it's almost like the idiot's guide to capital allowances, because certainly that's that's been helpful to us, because it's not something we've we've considered. It's not been relevant up to this point. Sure. So um, if you think of this building, which is um, our offices mm. in Barnes, when we bought the building, it already had radiators, fire and safety equipment. Um, it's got uh, electrical installations. And you can claim capital allowances on something called integral features. And if the previous owner hadn't claimed those capital allowances, you can do an election between the previous owner and you to claim on integral features. 
Now, the advantage of the integral features is that let's just say you buy a building for a million pounds and you claim capital allowance of 200,000 pounds. Yeah. The capital gain, the, the purchase price of a million pounds, I will actually pay capital gains tax when I sell the building. However, my base cost is a million pounds, irregardless of the fact that I claim 200,000 pounds of capital allowances. The capital allowances I offset against income tax. So if you're a high rate taxpayer, I could get up to 45% tax relief on the capital allowances claim on a maximum of £200,000, but I could still have my base cost as a million pounds for when I sell the property. Mm. So you can, it's very powerful from that point of view, plus the fact that you can claim capital allowances on any assets you buy in the business that you use for business purposes. In this case, computers, desks, chairs, things like that. Mm. And then that expense would be offsetable against my income tax liability because it's a partnership. Yes. Okay. Right. Got it. Got it. So it really capital allowances can apply to whole different sect, different, different, probably most most businesses. Would you say in some shape yeah. or form? Yeah. I mean, um, you would need to ensure that the previous owner, in this case, you do a section one nine eight election, but the previous owner, you have to make sure that they haven't made because you can't claim it twice. Yes. So you'd need to. So you'd need a capital allowances surveyor to ascertain what what is available and then um, what is claimable. And then you make sure that you'll do that in your um, in your when you do your particulars with the previous owner, you can find out whether they made a claim or not. It's significant, though, isn't it? I mean, these oh, are big yeah. numbers. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're doing one at the moment with a client, and the capital allowances will exceed two million pounds. Wow. So then it's a case of how you um, claim the capital allowances, and then the best way of getting the relief for those. And then it's a case of one income you can assess set off against those capital allowances. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, certainly you do a lot of property tax, don't you, and accountancy for some of your clients? Yeah, it sort of started off where, like I say, when I was at Panelco Forster, we ended, ended up for um, a um, subsidiary. We worked for subsidiaries of Barrett Homes, and then that started sort of the property field. But now we act for the largest two property franchises in the country, yeah. and we do a lot of the franchise partners and um, it's a case of when it gets complicated, um, it's, um, you need to have your thinking cap on. And, and the trouble is that a lot of firms, they don't give it, they don't actually know what to think about. So we picked up one recently where um, sort of more of a bookkeeping firm, um, the guy was from Australia, had Australian income and then he's got UK income, and then you come in in the realms of a double taxation treaty. Right. In that case, that was the Australian double taxation treaty, and the other accountant just said, look, we don't want to touch this. Um, and then, but if you know that type of stuff, then you can assist the client and uh, mitigate the tax. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, we were introduced through Mark Homer, who is mentors Chris and I, along with Rob Moore as well. So, I mean, we were really fortunate to have that introduction from Mark, and uh, it's certainly we're, we're very. I sound like I'm. I, you can pay me later, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you know, we you, the advice you've given us has been has been for that fabulous, and we're just really baby steps. We're starting out. Obviously, we've got big aspirations. But uh, yeah, that introduction from Mark has, has been absolutely yeah, I mean, yeah, amazing. We're really lucky in sort of Mark. All we try and do is if we can do the best job we can for each client, then they'll recommend you. Yeah. So we don't advertise or anything. And then all they'll do is they'll recommend someone else. And unfortunately then is then it's a word of mouth, which is the best form of advert. Yeah, absolutely. And you can 
pick clients up that way. But that means that every client we've got, we, we make sure that we look at the problem properly. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about property then, because obviously that that's a big a big part of what you do, and it's a big part of of, sort of what we do as well. Um, I mean, it's broad, right? There's so many different property strategies. <laughs> but when when people are thinking about getting into property. Um, what are the big watch out areas, the big things that they should consider uh, with their property business and how they set it up legally and, you know, the, the, the real, um, I suppose, meaningful aspects of property tax that people should be aware of? Um, I suppose the sort of the biggest change that people have found is that um, the tax horizon has has gone sort of negative on property mm. and it started predominantly in um, when George Osborne announced in 2015 that he was going to bring in something called Clause 24 yep. and that significantly adverse, adversely affected the tax relief you get on property and the way that works is that let's just say I earn £150,000 on PAY, that's the cusp upon which I'm into 45% tax. Yep. Prior to George Osborne's announcement, if I had £10,000 of rental income, and if my only expense was £10,000 of mortgage interest, then the property made zero profit and I'd pay no tax on that. The present circumstances, I'd be paying 45% tax on the £10,000 rental income, but only get £2,000 tax on the mortgage interest, i.e. Um, basic rate tax, 20% times £10,000. Yep. So that means I've got a tax bill on a property that doesn't make a profit. Yep. Now, we've got some clients that got up to 65 properties. So then what you've got to do is think about how you make it more tax efficient. And one of the things that people do is they invoke something called the Moyne Ramsey case. And you can claim Section 162 incorporation relief. And that means that you could then transfer those properties into a limited company without crystallizing a capital gain. Yeah. So if, let's say, you had one buy-to-let property and you put that in a limited company, even though it's your company and the company didn't pay you any money, it gave you shares, you would crystallize a capital gain because you're not running a business. Now, the Moyne Ramsey case was, well, what would what number of properties would we need on the spectrum between one and in, in this client's case 65 where along that line do i become a business right and with the moyne ramsey case it was decided that five rented properties in their case i think they had 10 and the other five weren't rented five would constitute a business as long as they they did it they worked and they did something called an earnest endeavor which means that they were physically working on the property in this case Mrs. Moyne Ramsey did more than 20 hours working on the property. And if it's an earnest endeavour as opposed to a passive rental income where you didn't actually get involved too much, then it was treated as a business. And that therefore means you can offset all of the lending costs, essentially, if it's treated as a business where you can only offset the 20% if it's if it's a property you own in your own name. Yeah, basically. so yeah. what you're then doing is you're moving the properties from your own name into a limited company yeah. and then the whole income and expenses are in the company rather than your own name. Yeah. In your own name, it would be adversely affected if you had mortgages. Obviously, if you don't have mortgages, then none of this arises because we're, we're concerned about tax relief on mortgage interest. Mm. And it's the tax relief on mortgage interest, the fact that you used to get up to 45% tax relief, now you only get a 20% tax relief, makes it disadvantageous and creates, in some cases, significantly large income tax liabilities, mm. which is why people move the properties to 
a corporate entity, i.e. limited company, and then you have the properties and the income they're on in the company, not in your own name. Yeah, so so are many people doing that, making that transition? Because five properties doesn't sound like a massive portfolio, you know, so is there been, has that precedent been set whereby then most, most landlords historically that own properties in their own names are moving them over? Or do you have to kind of prove the case again? Or is it is it just well, relatively straightforward to do um, that? Some of, the, some of these cases, we've done sort of like 20 or 30 properties and you used to get advanced clearance from HMRC. Right. So um, what would happen is that you could get advanced clearance, then you then you follow the transaction through. Um, uh, now you don't get advanced clearance. So you just got to be careful how you do it. You've also got to be careful that the Moyne Ramsey case, um, which was heard by Judge Berner, related to capital gains tax. You want to make sure that you don't crystallise an STLT liability by avoiding a uh, capital gains liability. So there are more wrinkles to it if you want to claim, if you want to avoid SDLT and capital gains tax. Yeah, okay. Um, so um, the, the devil is always in the detail with these things. <laughs> as always, as always. But for most people that are maybe starting out in property, a typical first strategy to get going with will be very often a buy-to-let strategy, which is sort of lower risk, you know, starting out, learning your, learning your, your trade, etc. So would the advice normally be to set up a limited company in order to do that? I mean, again, it will depend well, on personal circumstances. I mean, but... Yeah, without sort of sitting on the fence, the problem you've got is it depends on the size of mortgage yeah. and it depends on your exit. And what a lot of accountants fail to consider is the exit. So if the sake of argument, I buy a property um, 20 years ago for £3,000, then when I come to sell that property, let's say I sell it for £300,000, if that sits in a limited company, the company is going to pay corporation tax on that profit at 25%, which is going to be the corporation tax in two years. Yeah. Then I need to get it out of the company. So you've got to really do the numbers on that exit calculation as we know the tax today compared to whether you want to actually suffer the income tax now and not suffer that significant no. charge. The other thing is what I'm finding more and more is some people are going into more commercial property which don't have the same restrictions. So clause 24 restricted on mortgage interest doesn't apply to commercial property. Um, with residential property, the highest rate of capital gains tax is 28%. That doesn't apply on commercial property. Mm. So the scenarios are different. The VAT is different because um, with regards to residential property, that's um, exempt from VAT. So you don't charge VAT on the rental income. You can't claim any input VAT back on a buy-to-let property. However, if it's a furnished holiday letter letting, you can. If it's commercial, then the VAT you can charge and recover if the property is opted to tax. And then mm. you become and consider option to tax as well. So it is quite important to almost do the think as much of the thinking up front as you possibly can. Because I think, you know, sometimes the temptation is when you're starting out in property, you're all excited and you want to get going and you just kind of launch in there and maybe don't think about some of this more foundational stuff. Uh, or have a conversation with someone that can kind of give you a bit of guidance and support depending on your personal situation. Yeah, the problem you find is that um, a lot of accountants, if they don't understand the, their subject, their advice is going to be too narrow. It, it won't um, cover all the areas and they won't be able to tell you for the sake of argument how you could take advantage of Moyne Ramsey 
Um, and if you do take advantage of Moyne Ramsey, make sure you don't fall foul of the SDLT rules. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Gosh, so complex, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, is, yeah. <laughs> it just which shows, is, doesn't which it? Which is why you've got to keep up technically all, to, all the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So when it comes to future changes or things that are coming up, because um, I know that you've got a very in-depth, long list of stuff um, that for people, in, I suppose not just in property, but in business in general, to be aware of, um, um, can we have a quick canter through that stuff, uh, yeah, stuff sure. as well, Chris? I, mean, uh, I won't be the first to explain that um, uh, we've got, um, I think um, we're borrowing about 99.3% of GDP. The figures that the government have borrowed are absolutely eye-watering. I yep. think it was la- the last time it was this large was in the 60s after the Second World War, early 60s. We know there's going to be an election in three years' time. So whoever gets in, I suspect they're going to uh, be elected the next day. They'll make an announcement, say, wow, I didn't realise we'd borrowed this much. No one told me. Mm. Um, or if it's the Conservatives, they'll probably say, oh, well, we've just realised it's more than we, ex- we thought we'd borrowed. So I think that everything mo- that moves will get taxed. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more taxes that right. come through. Um, so... I think some of these taxes will be trying perhaps uh, a way of uh, dissuading people. If you think of, just to give you an example, if you think that on petrol, there's probably about 70% of the purchase price is tax, petrol and tax. Yeah. Um, if we go to electric vehicles, how is the government going to tax electric vehicles? How are they going to get that source of income? Um, and the government have already said their avowed intent is to make everyone drive electric vehicles. So they're going to lose a massive amount of um, petulant tax coming through. Um, you've also got to bear in mind that the um, uh, Office of uh, National Statistics have recently done, when I say recently, within the last two years, two reviews, both on capital gains tax and on inheritance tax. And there's also being... Um, concerns about a wealth tax. Now, at the moment, there's a wealth tax in countries like um, Switzerland, Spain, France. So if they went down that route, there's going to be a massive change in the capital taxes. Now, at the moment, we've only really got two capital taxes. Capital gains tax on the sale of assets while you're alive, inheritance tax on on assets when you die. But there are significant amounts of reliefs in there that I think are going to get either restricted or abolished. Mm. So to give you an example on inheritance tax, at the moment, um, if I make a gift seven years before I die, then it's treated as a potentially exempt transfer of pet. But it doesn't form part of my estate upon death as long as I die after seven years after making the gift. So um, the Office of National Statistics thinks that's too generous and that's going to be tackled. Uh, another way could be, say my client has got 68 properties, all in his name. Mm. Um, he, at the moment, would have a massive capital gains tax if he gave or sold those properties away. However, if upon his death he left those properties to his wife, then there is, under the spousal exemption, there is no inheritance tax on him leaving those assets to his wife but his wife would receive those assets, not at the cost to her husband, but at the market value at the date of his death. So you get an increase in the value of the properties from that point of view. If then the spouse gave that, let's say she gave all those 65 properties to the next generation, the children, 
and then she lives seven years, then it avoids capital gains tax and inheritance tax, which otherwise the government would have had a lot of money on. So the capital gains tax would have been at the rate of 28% on the gain on those properties. If the husband hadn't left them to the wife and left them to other members of the family, apart from some small exemptions, it would be subject to 40%. And that's 40% on the, the value at the estate value, not the gain on the property. So inheritance mm. tax is calculated a different way to capital gains tax. So again, that's another thing they're looking at. And then with regards to capital gains tax, there's relief at the moment for, so uh, say um, my principal private residence, I have a garden of um, an acre. If I sell a strip of my garden and then someone, I sell it to a developer and he builds a house on part of my garden, if it falls within my curtailage of uh, within an acre, I don't pay any capital gains tax on that because it's covered by my exemption. Yeah. So some of these reliefs are, I think, what they could be tackling. And to have two reports on each capital tax plus a wealth tax review means I think something could be in the offing there. Mm. But definitely the government need, whichever colour that government is, need to raise billions and billions of pounds. The question is whether the, the three drivers are tackled. The main three ra ways of raising tax, if you want to talk about big numbers, VAT, income tax, national insurance. Yeah. The triple lock the present government have says we're not going to raise those. We already know that the deficit is in the trillions. We know that the NHS haven't got enough funds to keep going. Yeah. The question is whether any of those are, are breached. Mm. So do you, do you, could you, I mean, obviously a crystal ball, but you're clearly very knowledgeable and, and well read up on all this stuff. Could you anticipate a significant increase in income tax, which is probably the one that most people are aware of um, or, or, or not? Um, the thing about income tax is when I, um, if you go back to uh, the late 70s, early 80s, um, and at that stage, um, the rate of income tax was 98%. The highest rate of income tax was 83%, and there was something called investment income surcharge of 15% to make it 98. And you're too young to know this, but um, in those <laughs> days, they had something called the brain drain, where all the clever people left the country. Yeah. And so the, if you look at sort of economic statistics, broadly it says if you increase income tax above 40 or 45%, people will, will happily spend more money on avoiding it than suffer the tax. Mm. In which case, when I started off um, in accountancy, people were setting up trusts. If they're peripatetic, they would go overseas and they would try and have overseas income. They would have non-UK income. Um, they may be able to take advantage of their domicile situation. You may not encourage too many non-UK domiciles in the UK. Mm. Um, it, it could be possibly disadvantageous because I think there was a, a report that when they reduced the rate of income tax, um, they actually got more money because less people tried to do avoidance. Yeah, yeah. So if it was me, I wouldn't be surprised if um, you could have, once upon a time, there's two rates of VAT. There was a higher rate um, for expensive items, caravans, um, not necessities. Yeah. So um, there could be two rates of VAT. They may, um, they've been talking about trying to release further relief, um, change tax reliefs on pensions. Um, they've been talking about 
trying to re reduce um, pensions that people earn, i.e. what the government pay them. Um, what most people don't realise is the government don't have a pension set aside for Chris Wilkins. When I retire, the pension is going to be paid out of the people earning and coming on the um, the working ladder at that time. Mm. And at the moment, I don't think the, the projections are that the government won't have enough money to to cover that. And that's because there's a lot more people retiring, living longer that would need pensions. And so there's a lot of imbalance in the sector. Um, so I, I think something will have to happen. And I think there'll be a lot of new taxes brought in as well. Mm, wow. Yeah, there's a lot to consider, isn't there? Uh, for sure. And and with, with sort of, you know, obviously we've been in the depths of a global pandemic as we know and there are there are winners and losers in any of any situation like that aren't there there are certain sectors you know the travel industry which is my background has absolutely taken a beating but there are lots of other businesses that have flourished you know online businesses etc so what have you have you seen any particular trends during this sort of last 12 to 18 months in in terms of different business sectors that you think are doing better or worse than others or you know if you were starting a business today you know, are there certain sectors which would, you know, be more um, beneficial from a tax point of view in terms of how things are going to play out? Well, um, I'm worried about things that not necessarily uh, from a tax point of view, but uh, there's a significant shortage of labour in the country. Yeah. So you've probably seen things like there aren't enough HGV drivers. Um, one of my clients in Bournemouth who's got a restaurant said that he can't open at lunch times. He hasn't got enough um, staff. He only opens five days in the evening. He said, there's tons of money. I, uh, people want to eat. I'd like to serve them. Haven't got the staff. Mm. So any jobs that are, any um, uh, businesses that are labor intensive, I've got some concerns about. The tech sector has done exceedingly well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at someone like Snap, I think, a few years ago, the share price was £10, now it's £70. Some of these tech sectors have gone um, fantastically well. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about some of the prices that some of these companies like Deliveroo are being issuing shares at. I'm, I don't see how that is sustainable. I'm just too old fashioned. I, I, I think businesses should make a profit. Um, <laughs> I don't quite understand how they can continually be making losses and then get a big share price. Um, because the fundamentals don't support them. Um, but certainly tech's problems, uh, tech businesses are doing a lot better. Um, and with regards to the property side, I'm seeing a lot of people who are being quite inventive. They're, they're buying, say, commercial property near high streets, local to high streets, and then converting them to residential mm. because there is a lot less demand for shops and, and high streets and I think the way high streets are set out are going to change dramatically. Yeah no I think you're absolutely right and actually interestingly this year has been a record year for IPOs in the UK I can't remember the exact number I think it was 3.4 billion pounds worth of IPOs in 2021 yes which you know you there's almost this counterintuitive thing going on because I mean I I put together a weekly business news um you know sort of the movers the shakers who's winning who's losing and actually going through that this week there were so many businesses that are absolutely flying you know whereas intuitively you think my gosh you know how can that be yes you'd expect more losers than winners so it's quite an interesting interesting time isn't it and I guess there's more to play out you know because we don't really know the true impact as you say, level of debt, you know, what happens when furlough properly finishes. Um, you know, I think there were 
5.3 million people on furlough. Uh, it's now down to about 1.3 million people still on furlough, but the job market has definitely shrunk um, for sure during the time. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. how it does play out in the next sort of you know couple of years, really. I think furlough at the moment is adversely affecting the job market. Mm. Um, and we've been recruiting for a number of positions and um, they're saying that if people are on furlough, they're not actively looking for jobs. And that won't finish till the end of September. The other problem you've got is that um, perhaps, say, the hospitality sector, there's a lot of Antipodeans that will be traveling and perhaps filling that gap. There's, the people aren't traveling anymore. Yep. And then we've got the Brexit situation, all of which create to a big disadvantage in this area. My other concern is I think there's going to be wage inflation um, stoking up problems. And the reason is, is because you'll see that um, a lot of the big HGV companies are putting on signing on bonuses, paying more money. You'll see in the hospitality sector, I was reading about um, a hotel chain in Devon that normally paid £7 an hour for waiting staff. They're now paying £15 an hour um, because there isn't enough staff. So the wages are just going up, which will create um, inflationary problems. I know Andy Haldane at the Bank of England had concerns about that. Um, in America, inflation is at 5.4%. Both the Fed in America um, and Jerome and the Bank of England here say it's short-lived, so they don't think it's structural inflation, mm. but it's yet to be seen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting time. So if someone was coming to you today to start a business, <laughs> what advice would you give them? Um, well, the best time to start a business is now. Um, whenever it is, because yeah. if you've got confidence in your own abilities, I think then then don't put it off, do it. You see a lot of people who give me sort of very detailed business plans. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, if you've got confidence, you're happy with your market, just do it. Mm. Um, now, I'm not saying just do it and throw caution to the wind. Obviously, it's got to be a calculated move. You've got to ensure that you don't take on too much debt or if you do take on debt, you've got a plan to pay it off and how you pay it off. And therefore, um, from that point of view, if you're taking on debt at the moment, I'd be advising people to try and get a fixed rate yep. because um, I can't see interest rates going down. They're only going to go one way, which is up. Mm. Um, there's some great mortgage deals um, around. If it's property you're buying, if it's commercial, then get in and try and get it fixed. At least you then know your outlays for the next number of years, two years, five years, whatever, and then you can plan around that and then you're not going to get too many unforeseen circumstances. Mm. So I remember I bought my present property in 2006 and base rate then was June 2006 was just under 6% and within three months it had gone up 50% to 9%. You don't want to tackle stuff like that. No. When you are starting off your business, you need to be pretty certain of your forthcoming costs. Therefore, if you do get a hiccup, make sure you build in some um, comfort in that in your cash flows, and then you can work around it. But you don't want too many unforeseen circumstances, especially if they're big numbers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's great advice around having a contingency. You, you know, it's your, it's your rainy day fund or your what-if scenario, isn't it? Because I think... Uh, so often, you know, and, and a high proportion of businesses fail, you know, certainly within the first three years, unfortunately, or maybe don't continue and, and not necessarily fail. But managing that risk and, and just trying to, as you said, I think great advice on locking in whatever interest rate now that you can, um, having a contingency pot as well, but also having 
not letting the fear of the business not working stop you from starting in the first place and that's yeah. all of, that's partly about mindset as well isn't it and self-belief and all of that good stuff yeah i mean if you if you think you can you you can run the business undoubtedly there'll be things you haven't considered but the main thing about a business is to make sure you get good advice to start with so you don't suddenly find that i don't know you'll end up having to pay an extra 20 percent vat where you didn't think vat was involved or whatever whatever you need to make sure that you get advice from day one so that you reduce the potential problems. I'm not going to say you can eliminate them because yeah. that's not possible. But if you are aware of what you're getting into, then it's going to be easy to extricate yourself if there's a problem because mm -hmm. you limit your downside risk. If you go into something blindfolded, you're going to have all manner of problems because you're not aware of the, what could happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, you, you're spot on because, um, you know, I always say fail to prepare, prepare to fail, you know, and that comes to whether you're, I don't know, going up and doing a public speech or whether you're, you know, planning for your business. So, yeah very good advice what's your appetite for risk personally then Chris with your business because obviously you've had a very you know illustrious career um, and been very successful with what you've done because someone might say oh well Chris must be very risk averse because he's all about the tax and he's all about the numbers and you know planning for the worst and covering your back and everything but what what's your personal attitude to, to kind um, of risk and how you manage it in your business well I sort of um, sit here and tell the clients um, I, I would probably tell them um, not to invest in a gift horse because I give them so many negatives. But I say, look, if I tell you the negatives, then at least you're going into the business with your eyes wide open. But if you don't know the negatives, something could come and bite you on the bum. Mm. Now, when I um, took this loan on of this building, um, I think a lot of accountants would have told me not to do it because the figures were just too large. The, yeah. the building was bigger than I needed. I didn't need all the space. But what we did is that because the business expanded so much, we then used up the space and then we could sublet a bit that we didn't. Now, mm. that is a risky element. And did I know that I would get tenants? No. Did I know that the business would expand? No. But you sort of got to have confidence in your own abilities because yeah. what would be worse, I have a building a quarter of this size and then I, I'm too big for it. Then I'll have to move again. Yeah. So you've got to sort of work out the, the calculated risk. And then the, the repayments, yes, they were large, but they were fixed. And I was sort of pretty comfortable. I could work around the numbers. And mm. like anything, yes, you do have some hiccups, but you've got, as long as you've got some cushion in your cash flows, then you can sort of work around it. Yeah, yeah. So would you, how would you describe your, yourself then in terms of risk? Um, Probably, um, I'd probably be more on the adventurous side. Adventure? Oh, I'm loving this. Oh, I would have thought that. There we are. <laughs> See, I always knew you had a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. Now, can you think, what, what I'd really like to understand, because you've had all this brilliant business experience and you'll have had lots of advice over the years, both in business or maybe personal advice, whatever. Can you think of uh, the best piece of advice you ever had or a piece of advice that has just kind of really stood you in good stead and has stayed with you for a long time? Um, probably the best piece of advice that was a negative piece was don't start your own business till you've qualified. Ooh. Because it, it is just too much to take on. You can't sort of have a full-time job, study at the weekend and run your own business. Now, because I'm probably a glutton for punishment, I became self-employed when I was 20. And this just started off with a guy I met um, when I took my first car um, for an MOT. And um, the car cost me 10 pounds. And um, I got it for MOT and the guy behind me um, was a share fisherman. 
and um, he said that his accountant had just retired and we started chatting and I had an old McDonald's bag in the back where I'd had a, um, a Big Mac, which I never have anymore. Um, <laughs> and I wrote my phone number and that's how it started. And then he had um, a daughter that had a boyfriend who worked on a building site. He then had a son who was a, um, a building contractor. And um, ultimately what happened is that that building contractor had a case with HMRC so this was, if we go forwards, about five years. So I was about 25 then. And um, in those days, you have a certificate called a, a, certificate called a 714. And um, in the 70s, um, Inland Revenue said that we've got a lot of people working on building sites in Manchester, Liverpool, around there, and not paying tax. So we're going to stop tax at the basic rate of tax. And that was a form called an SC60. So the government in those days stopped 25% tax. So if I earned £100 in a week, the government stopped £25 and give me £75. And the £25 you claim at the end of the year. So you need right. an accountant to do the accounts. However, if you've got a bigger business, you could claim for a 714 certificate, which means you're paid gross. This client fell foul of HMRC on something he'd done. So then um, he came to me and said, we need to sort this out. Um, the inspector didn't agree and said, we're gonna withdraw it. In which case my client would be out of business um, because to have, if your turnover in those days, let's say was 400,000 pounds, if 25% stop was that, and you couldn't recover that 100,000 pounds till at the end of the tax year, mm. you'd have no cash flow on that income. So um, my client um, then went to his MP the MP then wrote to the head of the Inspector of Taxes. The Inspector of Taxes dug their heels in and wouldn't agree. So then we had to go to the General Commissioners. So as me, unqualified 25-year-old with my briefcase, building contractor client in um, Southend um, High Court. And this was because that's where the General Commissioners heard their cases. And there, I was read up about it all. I read the, um, all the background details. And um, I presented my case, H inspectors presented their case, General Commissioner said, we agree with Mr. Wilkins, your client is entitled to the 714 certificate back. Client said, fantastic. The trouble was that the MP was there and the district inspector, the assigned inspector in charge of all the other inspectors, he didn't want to lose this case. So he jumped up and said, um, unfortunately, you, you can't give that decision because judicial precedent says that a higher court has said that under this certain case, those circumstances mean that you're not entitled to give the 714 certificate back to your client. Fortunately, I'd read the legal cases. So <laughs> I explained that that case that the district inspector said wasn't on all fours with my client's case because the case that he cited, the taxpayer had never paid any tax. My client paid all his tax. So we won the case, we went out, the building contractor said, all my subcontractors are coming to you and I'm gonna give you any contacts coming to you. 35 years later, he still refers clients to me. Wow, what a story, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, God, so much in that. So one, the confidence and the self-belief at a young age, right, 25, that's pretty, 
Two, you did your homework, <laughs> you did your due diligence. And then three, you know, by serving the client and absolutely delivering an amazing job, you know, you've, you've had all this business all those years later. I mean, that's, that's yeah, phenomenal. I mean, uh, it's like when you deal with any um, HMRC inquiry, you've got to understand the issue. You've got to try and get into the, into the officer's mind as to what yeah. he or she is looking for in this case. And then you've got to think how, if that is the problem, how do I actually get over that problem? Which legal case can I use that would support my case? The inspectors will have their legal cases, which which um, uh, we can have business income manuals or any of the legislation that you can use. Which ones will help me? Which ones is he going to use to try and negate my argument? Mm. And on that basis, we our record for HMRC inquiries is unrivaled because we just always do it as if it's my if it's my accounts. So I deal with it exactly the same yeah. way to make sure that we can defend the client to our best ability. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, HMRC can be a pretty daunting, you know, sort of um, situation to face if you have an inquiry or an investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and um, it can be very expensive and it can be long-winded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence the knowledge and the confidence. Well, the most important the thing, we want to win it. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're competitive, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, honestly, this has been amazing. We, could, we, we were saying, actually, we were going to have to do a follow-up because we've just literally scratched the surface on so much of the stuff here but so we will be doing a follow-up but in terms of the um you know the the quality of the advice the knowledge the experience it's going to be massively helpful for anyone listening and uh, or watching so thank you very much Chris. Oh, pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Nice to um, chat to you. yeah but where can people find you so we're Wilkins Southworth, we're based in Barnes, Southwest London. Um, we are, um, we're on LinkedIn and we've got a, a website that's got loads of technical literature, uh, www.wilkinsouthworth.co.uk um, or, or just give us a call if you've got a problem. Um, we deal with sort of, uh, we're quite good at the tricky ones. Yeah, <laughs> you're good at the tricky ones. So my final question before we finish, if you don't mind indulging me. So what does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you, Chris? It means that really be the best you can. If you take a job on, you've got to make sure that you can give the, the best you can. The way I do deal with it is if it was my accounts, I, I, give, I look at it as if it's mine and, and I couldn't do better than that. And the reason I do that is because if you don't think of, for sake of argument, how are you going to exit this business before you get into it, the best tax advice in the, is in advance, not in arrears. There's no point, let's say, say I want to claim business asset disposal relief, which was the old entrepreneur's relief. Those rules have got to subsist for two years prior to exit. Well, if you don't sort out the circumstances on day one, you won't be able to get your exit right. Mm. And there's some other taxes that, that, for the sake of argument, inheritance tax, you're talking about a potential exempt transfer, seven years. You've got to make sure that you understand the problem first and then you can work out your exit and then you can advise the client accordingly rather than just being lazy. And there's a lot of mediocrity about that. Yeah, so don't settle for mediocrity. Be brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. Pleasure, really pleasure. Thank you. It. Thank you. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.